Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners from a 100-plus degree Los Angeles. Today, we have a really fantastic show in the air-conditioned studio for you. Our guest used to manage Louisiana's $3 billion portfolio as assistant state treasurer. He's now a business professor at Tulane. He's won numerous teaching awards, started the nationally acclaimed Birkin Road Reports student stock research program. You've probably seen him in Barron's, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, all these other places, maybe on an NPR show, Out to Lunch. I actually got to see our guest speak over a decade ago and followed up on an email chain that we had that was 10 years old. The beauty of the internet today. Welcome to the show, Peter Ricciuti. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. This is very nice. Yeah. Sorry about the heat there. You know, well, I had to escape last weekend. I went up to the Pacific Northwest and was up on the Hood Canal. And as a, I know, fellow baseball fan, I was really pressing hard to go see a Mariners game, and my wife said, "No, we're going to the cabin." So sadly, um, I know you're a big. I know you've been to. I think all the parks. What's uh, what's been? Yeah, your I, I, I certainly have. In fact, I'm uh, heading back over to uh, AT and T Park in San Francisco later this week. So uh, that's one of my favorites. Uh, it's been a good. It's it's been a good diversion for me. You can get some garlic fries and everything else. Oh yeah, <laughs> and the whole stadium smells like garlic fries. It's it's really something. What's been your favorite of all the the parks? Well, you know, I grew up in the shadow of. Uh, I grew up about a half mile from Fenway Park, so that's kind of like the Vatican. And love that ballpark in San Francisco. And the one that nobody ever talks about is is where the Pirates play at PNC Park. If you at night they light up all the bridges. You know, it's a city of bridges, and it's a uh, just really something to see. That regularly gets voted the best park in the country which surprises a lot of people. Yeah. I finally got to check off Wrigley this year, and it was a canceled replay day game. <laughs> so there was no one there, and I got to sit like rightly, directly behind home plate for, I think, like oh $50. It was so They almost asked you to play. And this, it was such a wonderful memory because, one, there was two girls sitting next to me that proceeded to get possibly the drunkest of anyone I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and the poor thing has got pooped on by a seagull. So quite, quite an interesting... Oh. Day. That is, I'm, <laughs> that, that's a memory. I know. Well, and then and then the Cubs blew it in the I think the bottom of the ninth. They had a chance against the Braves. Okay. Well, I, I imagine we'll talk about investments at some point. Um, <laughs> I knew we were here for something. Yeah. So let's look. I, I'm familiar with you, but why don't you give us a little origin story? How you your windy road from from Fenway down to the swamps and everything of New Orleans. Uh, how'd you uh, kind of, what's the, what's the origin story career path? Well, you know, it's funny. I always talked to, I've taught here for 31 years at Tulane and my students, because they're 22, 25, they, they think life is going to be linear. And of course it's not, it's very circuitous. And I, my career was very circuitous. I uh, went to Babson college up in Massachusetts, I raised in Massachusetts and, uh, and then went to Kidder Peabody, the investment firm, and then came down here to manage all the state's money. We had about 3 billion under, under management. And uh, while I was there, a lot of constituents asked me about how they could find investment information on publicly traded companies in this region. And, you know, we're so far from Wall Street that I realized there was nothing, nothing there. And so we, uh, and I was teaching part-time at Tulane and I thought, you know, that we've got these really smart students that want to get experience. And we've got these companies that are kind of orphan companies. Nobody's following them. So we uh, created it 25 years ago. We created Birken Road Reports and all the reports are free. They're online. If you just go to birkenroad.org, they're all free. And I think the thing we've been most proud of is we've sent 750 students from this program onto jobs in the investment business. So it's been a great, uh, been a great springboard. And then we have a the Birken Road Mutual Fund, which Hancock Bank manages using the students' research, and uh, that's in its six, uh, 17th year. And during that period, it's outperformed 99% of the 
1,700 stock mutual funds in the country. So it's been it's been really really terrific. It's made up of these little unknown companies in the South. So that's been a, been a lot of fun. That's awesome. We're gonna we're gonna get deep there in a little bit. I really want to chat a lot about that. I want to talk first. Let's let's chat a little bit about your worldview as a teacher. I mean, you've spent the last couple three decades. You mentioned teaching. So let's talk a little bit about markets. So like, I know you teach security analysis, but let's start broad base. As a finance professor, I'm sure you take a look at the US economy. You know, a lot of people take a look around and see some of the lowest unemployment in our lifetimes and times are all good and everything popping champagne bottles. What's what's your worldview right now? How things look to you, the US economy? Well, you know, the truth of the matter is you really you're better off investing when things look miserable. And I just think there's just too much optimism out there. Uh, you know, we, one of the big problems I have uh, in uh, Birkin Road Reports visiting companies and on the radio show we do here, I'm always talking to business people. And I always ask them as kind of an icebreaker, what keeps you up at night? And I would say 95% the answer is always finding labor. And I think that we're really at a at an interesting junction, particularly since the president wants to, you know, throw half the people out of the country and not let anybody in. And that's kind of odd because if you asked an economist the single most important variable in determining how an economy is going to be going forward, it would be the population of working age people. So uh, we're really running up against a wall in here. And of course, one of the things you hear people say, sometimes the the party, it's not empowerable, sometimes say, but that the percentage of uh, working Americans is is still, there's still a lot of people in there. But in that group, these are people that are retired, you know, maybe have a disability, they're managing households, they're going to school. I mean, this is not an, an extra layer of, of potential employers, employees. So uh, I think we've got a real problem on that end. And of course, you know, you know, I've been doing this forever, you know, I guess 40 years altogether. And, you know, I'm a free markets guy. I think, you know, I think tariffs and trade wars are prosperity killers. So this is a very odd time uh, for me. I think maybe these people think it's a zero sum game. If anybody makes any money, it's coming off of my plate. And that's really not the way it is. You know, the pie is, uh, the pie is infinite if everybody can, uh, can do well. So, you know, I was very bullish back in 09 when everybody wanted to you know, thought we would be eating our young in the street and things like that. And and now that everybody's very optimistic, it's made me want to pull back a little. But you know, the, the truth of the matter is, for most investors, they're better off just buying some... I think back of, you know, I've known hundreds of people that have made millions of dollars in the market, and they've all been almost the same story. They've bought good stocks or good funds at attractive prices and, and held on. So... You know, I think we're talking about at the margin, you know, being being bullish or bearish. I, I think the core should should just hang in there. And a lot of it with uh, a lot of it with index funds, particularly. You know, so it's it's funny. We there's a lot of charts, like, for example, if you look at unemployment rate and you mention same thing with you could even extrapolate it to tax revenue or any number of indicators where I think most people would assume, hey, really low unemployment's great. And and for then for future returns for the stock market, it's actually the opposite. Where when everything looks rosy and shiny historically, that's when you you want to be doing the opposite of what you think. And when times are really bad, it has a high correlation simply uh, to stocks being down as well. I was laughing when you said what keeps you up at night because last night my dog was snoring and that that's what kept me up like half the night and i kept he's 12 years old so he, like you feel bad kicking him but i was, just, was giving him a little elbow yeah yeah there's uh that's uh yeah the, and that might be the other five percent when i ask people it's uh unruly dog yeah so it's something yeah. there's one more tweet that was funny a buddy tweeted out today he said well the one surprising benefit from these tariffs and trade wars is that there's supposedly a large glut of u.s steak and he says steak prices should be plummeting he said this <laughs> I'm, I'm all for it now i'm gonna this is how i, I yeah gonna, yeah just unite yeah the funny thing i was gonna say is that you know the the group that is Louisiana is very, very much into this discussion because South Louisiana is the largest port in the United States by tonnage. And uh, so we are more vulnerable on these tariffs than anyone else. So if it seems like I have a little extra angle on this thing, it's it's very, very, uh, very, very important to us uh, down here. The odd thing is that it seems to be hurting those red states more than the blue states, the people that, you know, really supported the president. And they're really 
scared to death. You know, everything from pig farmers to grain farmers and such. So it's very, uh, and then the port here in Louisiana, which uh, Louisiana supported the president as well. So and I know he said trade wars are easy to win, but I, I just don't see any historical reason to believe that. You know, it's uh, plus it's a different world now. You know, it's not 1970 where we dominate the world and kind of can push people around. Uh, there's other big players like China out there. Yeah, talk to me a little bit about, and by the way, you're, you're talking to the world's worst grain farmer. It's and I think it's I think we're like harvesting wheat as we speak right now. In we have a small family farm in Western Kansas, and our longtime podcast listeners will smile because last time this year, uh, our wheat farm had burned down due to a errant oh. combine. It's okay; there was insurance on it, and everyone is fine. But <laughs> I'm I'm uh, humorously the worst wheat farmer on the planet, as my listeners know. So they'll they'll laugh at that comment. I see a guy that should hedge. Yeah, uh, believe me, it's <laughs> should hedge by by selling the farm is the correct hedge, I think. Um, so than buying the farm. Yeah. It. So you mentioned a, an interesting point, and that you know, particularly in this day and age, we no longer exist in a vacuum, uh, particularly with the economy. And maybe talk to me a little bit about this interconnectedness of the global economy, and is is kind of what we're seeing in the U.S similar to what's going on in the rest of the world? Or what are, what are the major forces do you think are at play is, is kind of the way the, the world looks today? Well, one of the reasons the market has done so well and the economies have done so well is that for the first time in, oh, in recent history at least, all of the world was synchronized. Everybody was, just about all the nations were growing at a, uh, at a positive pace at the same time. And we haven't seen that in a, in a long, long time. And now, you know, you know, this kind of battle is, is you know, you against the world and, and all of that. I, you, look at, you look at things like China, and China has the potential market that is so much larger than the United States. As all of these uh, people become middle class, and it just seems like the wrong group to uh, get mad at you, you know. And so, um, and then, our, you know, giving up our allies. And, and the other thing is, you know, it's just more confusing than it used to be. Like one of the things you've had people say is, we're going to put tariffs on these German cars coming in. Well, you know, the Mercedes is made in Georgia. The BMW is made in South Carolina. The Toyota is made in Mississippi. I mean, what are we talking about here, you know? And uh, it just, it seems like it's kind of a time warp, but it's a very, very uh, different world uh, out there right now. It's not as simple as it as it used to be. It's complicated. Economics has always always been pretty complicated. So you talk, you know, you've been doing this for 30 years. What have been some kind of the main macro, and this can be economic, it could be related to the markets, kind of surprises. For me, I've mentioned a few times on the podcast, getting to see negative yielding sovereign bonds was kind of a strange phenomenon. But but as a professor, you know, do, do these look just kind of like normal times that like at various times in the past? Or are there any particular areas that you kind of shake your head and say, this is a big surprise, or this is crazy. Anything that comes. Yeah, to I mind? think you, you look at you know, stor- uh, today's PEs versus historical rates. They're just they're out of the range, and people seem to think, you know, they, they, people use the four most dangerous words in finance. You know, this time it's different, and it never is. Uh, the uh, the seven most dangerous words overall are, hey, we're getting the band back together, but that's a whole different thing. And uh, but uh, yeah, just the valuations here just seem just seem crazy and that they they assume that this stuff that this market will continue to expand forever and what you've got is i think is a sugar high from this tax cut and the real issue on the tax cut is you know what what is that that money going to be used for and since 09 what corporations have been doing is they've been taking that these record profits and doing it they're buying back their own stock they're buying each other or they're uh, uh, hoarding cash and that's exactly what they've done in multiples of that since the tax cut came along so the idea that this tax cut was going to expand the economy in a major way just isn't going to happen you know I've, i sat on the board of a company myself and i'm not throwing stones here but you know if you're a c-suite executive or a director i mean you look at it and you do you, do you take some of that money and take a real risk like you know building a distribution facility in south florida or something or do you just take that money and keep buying back your own stock because 
stocks ultimately run on earnings per share, and that's a pretty simple, relatively risk-free way to move up those earnings per share. You basically have the same profits divided by a smaller number of stocks out there. You know, it's a smaller number of shares. And uh, so if you look at two big trends, you can see why the market's gone up. It's, it's companies buying back their own stock, and then it's companies buying each other. You know, in, in the year 2000, there was 6,600 publicly traded companies uh, on the Wilshire 5000, and now there's 3,300. And so if you take the fact that we have half the number of companies, and then we the companies that exist have much fewer shares. You know that's kind of the intro to the economics book. You've got more dollars chasing fewer uh, fewer shares of stock out there, and uh, I think that's that's really been pushing it. But I think because now that I know you're a farmer, I can use this expression: is I think we're eating our seed corn. You know, it's so uh, this we're not planting for future growth. We're just just doing these things that really don't uh, add much to the future of the. Uh, future of the company. So we'll, we'll have to see. And so, you know, as this is like the most impossible and my fi- least favorite question when I'm doing uh, chats with people when they ask me, so apologies ahead of time. But um, <laughs> what, what do you sort of like if you were to look out? And I know it's always obvious in retrospect, but what's kind of causes this to end? Uh, you know, is, is this 10 year bull market um, or this economic expansion, what, what what do you see as the main sort of risk factors? Is it the sort of macro tariffs? Is it simply old age? Is there something that is it rising interest rates? Anything in in, in mind that comes uh, to the forefront is is the big sort of catalyst sure. or risks? I, I think you you get a couple of things. I, I basically bull markets don't really die of old age. So something something occurs, and I think the two things are. Uh, higher interest rates because you know the fact that we're really out of employees that means that I know it hasn't happened much yet but wage inflation is really in the cards and that's the ultimate inflation commodity inflation runs up and down food oil things like that but wage inflation is in the cards and you're going to see a 10-year treasury at three and a half percent you know probably early next early next year and when you do those models like we do in class that tries to like the dividend discount model for example it tries to figure out what a company's worth the overall rate of interest is a key, key determinant. Uh, the other thing is, I think that earnings will start to the earnings growth will start to slow down. Uh, the the sugar high from the tax cuts will be over, and we are at the peak of the economy now. Whether this is the exact peak or a peak like this could last even a couple more years, but not much more. And I think when these tariffs hit, I would say about half the conference calls I listen to now somehow bring up. You know what are the tariffs going to do to you? And of course, every one is negative. And uh, when that starts to impact earnings per share, I think people are going to get a little bit spooked. And uh, I think that that could happen. You know, it's uh, people are so complacent now. You know, I, you know, for from '09 to '18 or something or '17, you know, I'd go to cocktail parties or barbecues or here we have crawfish boils and. Nobody would ever ask me about the stock market. Now I go out and everybody's got some crazy idea or, you know, even Bitcoin or something like that. They want to find the most speculative thing they can they can get their hands on. And that's that's never been a been a good sign. And of course, you know, at Birkenrode Reports, we're following such I mean, it things have really worked out. We've had 45 companies bought out since we you know, we follow 40 a year and we've had 45 bought outs in the last 25 years and uh, but they, but you know, to be totally honest, they tend to be very boring companies. You know, we've had a company that Ready Ice that was the company that made ice cubes. We have a company called Crown Crafts that's the largest maker of baby bibs in the United States. They're not very exciting, but that's where the money is made, not the one that. Sometimes I think if you go to a party and other people own the same stocks you own, you you probably should go home and sell them. Well, you just think about how much Ready Cubes would have sold for if they changed their name to Ready Cube Coin. Yes, isn't that ready, the truth? Ready crypto cubes, and they yeah. probably would have got ten x. Um, all right, so let's <laughs> let's transition a little bit. I mean, I love chatting macro, but chatting macro in so many ways is a little bit like just kind of gossiping because it's really hard. Like you mentioned earlier, a lot of the it doesn't necessarily impact a you know fair amount of the advice, general investing advice for people that I think you mentioned. But let's talk a little bit about your kind of framework and thinking about equity markets, perhaps from the bottom up. So as you're surveying and and maybe even talk about the origins in the security analysis class about kind of the approach to investing in individual stocks, because for a lot of people, I mean, this is an old school, go back to the time of Ben Graham and Peter Lynch and everything else that a lot of 
pros have really struggled at during this cycle. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about uh, kind of your just overall framework for stock picking and security analysis. Well, you know, part of our program is, uh, you know, there's a, we have 200 students. We divide them up into teams of five, and each team is responsible for writing an investment research report on, on each company. And part of it is uh, one day out with the CFO and the CEO, and I try to join them, join them for that. And it's so interesting because, you know, first of all, a lot of people just view stocks as ticker symbols and you know they don't even realize that there's people behind these companies and everything and and um you learn the most interesting things that maybe don't even show up on a balance sheet or an income statement we i had mentioned crown crafts the uh the kind of between new orleans and baton rouge and they're uh, makers of baby bibs and all the stuff you'd find inside a crib and such and so the one thing that it, it cracked me up is that the to figure out what makes these companies tick like we were visiting with the ceo and one of the students said, uh, well, we're using to find the driver for your company is we're using the uh, rate of U.S. births. And the CEO said, um, kind of surprisingly, he said, uh, that's actually not it. And we were kind of stunned or whatever. And he said, uh, no, it's the rate of U.S. first births because by the time you get to the second and third kid using the same bib used on the first one. And uh, so every one of these companies has these nuances um, that uh, you, you just get in there and you start to figure out what really makes them tick. We had a company called Cyberonics. Uh, it was recently bought out by an Italian firm, and that company made a device that was implanted in your chest, and there was a lead that went up into your brain, and that was to stop different brain functions that were, uh, you know, uh, needed to be remedied by a kind of a rhythmic piece. And so, and you know, we looked at that company for about a year until we finally figured out that their the key to that business was the battery ran out every two years, and they had a a whole group of uh, uh, people that every two years needed to buy a new battery from them. You know, it's so uh, it's they're all they're all a little bit different, and they're all very interesting. You know, I I drive down the highway and I see a truck of a stock I own. I wave my wave at them. The stocks become your little friends. You know, but it's uh, but I, I think that's I think that is the is the story. And sometimes you you get a it's just the macro winds are so strong you can't really fight them. Like for instance, Louisiana is the third largest producer of oil and gas in the United States. And of course, so you've got companies that are well run and such, but they've still been driven into the ground over the last uh, over the last three, three and a half years. So sometimes the macro does um, uh, overtake the uh, uh, the micro micro analysis. Now, and oil, by the way, and it's kind of interesting, got prices up between 70 and 75 dollars, which would um, indicate that you would start to get people back to work, even in the Gulf of Mexico, which is one of the more expensive places. But the, the oil service stocks aren't moving very much. And I think that's telling you that people don't think this is going to hold. You've got President Trump telling the Saudis to produce more oil. And then at the same point, you know, sanctions against Iran. So there's 2 million barrels that are off the market. So it's, you know, we, a lot of mixed signals on that. And uh, we, we took five students out to West Texas few months ago to see these shale fields, which are um, just enormous. You know, it's, they have really been able to, why it's not even oil drilling, it's like mining. And it seems like they have unlimited uh, ability to, to pull oil up in there. So you, you get industries where you got to understand the big picture before you, before you get uh, whittled down to the little picture. And I would like to tell you about what I think is the most interesting story in energy right now. And that is in South Louisiana to the Southwest, kind of not too far from Texas on the coast, is these LNG facilities that have been built. And they are the most interesting thing in the energy field. You know, we've been, not only have we found an enormous amount of natural gas in this country, but even when we're looking for oil, we find natural gas almost by accident. And that we have so much gas, every pipeline, every ship, every storage container is filled with natural gas. And so it's driven the price of natural gas down below $3 a thousand cubic feet. And so what they're doing is they take this gas, the pipelines all go down to around Lake Charles, Louisiana, and they take that natural gas and they freeze it. They actually lower it to 265 degrees below zero. And then and it shrinks it to one six hundredth of its size. Then it gets loaded in these ships. And while it's below $3 here, it's about $6 in Europe and about $10 in Asia. And so they ship it across the world, reheat it, and make the arbitrage. The project down there has been $50 billion. And that's, I think, the largest private investment in the history of the country. So there's a lot of little stories going on that don't get a lot of attention, but it's a fascinating time to be an investor. So talk to me a little bit about the process, particularly with this army of young students. And and, and you can. I'd also like you to talk a little bit about touch upon some of the benefits of the inefficiencies, perhaps, that you mentioned geographic location. So maybe people aren't following some of these companies because they happen to be located 
in sort of the deep south and 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 maybe that they're also small caps that might be underfollowed and is it do the students select from a list? Are they going out and picking their own? Uh, what's what's kind of the whole process there? I actually do that that part, and of course we got a little bit of turnover every year because companies get bought out. Or recently in the oil business, kind of a few of them have gone out of out of business. But they all fit a certain character, and that is that they're usually under a billion in market cap. They've got a, a good balance sheet. They've got good profit margins, but not great profit margins, so they don't attract a lot of uh, a lot of competition. Another thing we like is when management owns a lot of the stock because they're definitely in the same same boat you're in. And I think that's our big advantage. I remember getting called by, we had a nice write-up about us in the New York Times, and I got a call from an Ivy League professor, and, and he was very interested. And then at the uh, at the end, he said, you know, we would do something just like that, only we would, you know, do large companies like Microsoft. And, you know, he basically, I guess, because he wasn't, hadn't been in the business, but, you know, that's the whole key. The key is to find companies that you're going to add value, and the inefficiencies are in those smaller companies. It's also kind of an interesting, what that leads to, though, is a, a kind of an interesting topic, which is some people think the the field isn't level and that, you know, the institutions really dominate and such. And I really think it's just the opposite now, because when I was in the business, oh, 35 years ago, uh, the commissions were so high. Now they're next to nothing. And research was something, you know, you had to smuggle out of another firm or such. Now it's all available to everybody. So I think it's really a lot more democratic process uh, to be an individual investor now. And the the third part is just what we're talking about right now. These these companies, you know, they're not penny stocks by any means, but they're um, they're relatively illiquid if you were an institution that needs to come in and buy a million shares or such. But it, it's another example where that individual can come in and buy 500, 1,000 shares and not move the market. And uh, they kind of have that market to themselves. So I, I think the stock picking is a lost art. And uh, I think it's, you, we're better off doing it now than we have in the last 40 years. I agree with you. You know, it's funny. I listen to all, a lot of these professional managers complain about the rise of indexing and how it makes the world harder. And I kind of scratch my head because in my mind, it, it should actually create a lot more inefficiencies for them. But the challenges for so many of these guys, like you mentioned, they're trying to decide whether they buy Microsoft or Apple. And most of those companies have, I don't know, 50 analysts following them, if not not 100, where most of these kind of smaller companies, there's the real opportunity for value-added research. And I mean, I don't care if it's you go have dinner with the CEO and he's drinking a ton of whiskey because he's depressed about his company. You know, that's value-added research in my mind. And so there's a lot more opportunity. But I think a lot of it goes along with in... I, I don't you go know to if, jail for that, by the way. Yeah, Regulation FD. Uh, yeah, actually, yeah. you don't go. The guy, the CEO, goes to jail. That's right. So um, you can ask whatever you want. <laughs> I, I, I'm just. I, I wasn't even saying if he's telling you anything. He just looks sad and he's drinking. Yeah, that's right. And so, <laughs> but you're right. You're absolutely right. I, I think these uh, small companies. You know, we go to companies that you know an analyst hasn't seen them in a couple of years. It's like they go to sign up. Welcome. Tulane students, and it's like, oh, they're almost here. Get the donuts. And that's where we find the uh, interest. And the students, I remember we were visiting a little company called Bayou Steel once. It's here in Louisiana. It was at three for a long time and then got bought out, I think, at like 70 by the Chinese. But I remember a student asking, because they're, they're very smart, but they're, they're young. So uh, one of them asked the CFO, you know, this is such a great story. Uh, have you tried telling this story to Wall Street? And, of course, he just cracked up laughing because that's what he spends half his time trying to get Wall Street interested in the story, and it's just Wall Street's only going to follow a company where they can make some money, and the uh, and the way you make money is trading. So it's got to have a lot of volume or a lot of shares out there, a big float, or that the company is going to need to uh, you know do financing. And so if you're a, a good company running well with good margins in a boring field in a deep South state, it's going to be tough for you to attract Wall Street's attention. And also, they've fired a lot of analysts over time, and they fired a lot of small cap analysts. So I think there's never been a better chance to see these uh, see these kind of companies. And we have a conference once a year, April 26th of 19 is the next one. And the 40 companies we follow, all, basically all send their CEO and CFO to present at the, it'll be the 23rd annual Birkenrode Reports Conference. And that's all free and open to the public. But that's a good example. Sometimes you're out there, you visit with uh, the management, you hear their presentation, and there's nothing that shows up on the income statement, but you get an idea whether this is someplace you want to put your money. 
<laughs> now that you've met the people that are running it. Well, I, I think it goes along with the general, you mentioned sort of this a lot fewer stocks over the past 20 years, but also if you look at something like CNBC ratings or just the general disinterest as people have gotten walloped by two big bear markets the past 20 years that people don't really talk with the last year exception i think the people have in general have a much much more of a disinterest in stock picking than they did 15 20 years ago and i see it just with my friends and family and it's a great thing if you're a securities analyst because it means you have less competition but tell me a little bit about the process and and how this has evolved over the past 30 years so you know y'all mentioned you do site visits um, you design models, publish, uh, and by the way, are the are the research reports that end up getting published are they publicly available, privately available? Oh yeah, if you go to Birkenroad.org, they're all free, and you can uh, see them in there. And uh, and I think you'd be very impressed with what the students do. Uh, you know, because they've spent four months with a team of five students doing these. And one of the things that makes them so valuable in the workplace is they've developed from scratch these financial models to try to determine what earnings are going to look like, what the company's balance sheet's going to look like. Because, you know, we always tell the students that people on Wall Street make a lot of money and they don't pay you for knowing what the company looks like now or what it looked like two years ago. It's what's it going to look like three to five years down the road. And they do a lot of research. You know, they, uh, in addition, they, you know, they will talk to customers and they'll talk to suppliers. And I remember last year, you know, they, sometimes they come up with some pretty great things. Uh, one group was uh, went to the boat show here in New Orleans because one of the companies we follow is Marine Products. They make boats. And just with a clipboard, went around talking to people about whether this was the year they were going to f- finally uh, make that purchase and what they were looking for in a boat and how they were going to make their decision. And so um, it's one thing to get information from management, which is terrific, but you know, to get that independent research, I think, is really excellent. So we we, um, we dig around and dig around. I remember one group of students, we were following Rollins, which is the company that owns Orkin Pest Control, and they went out and they got four different bids for getting termite and cockroach uh, removal in their in their house and, you know, got very detailed bids and saw the way they differed in the way they uh, did business. By the way, we learned something funny from that story, which is, one of the things that the bug company said was that their big problem, of course, is finding labor. But it be, it's beyond what you and I were talking about. It's, it's you know, it's trying to find a guy, this is mainly male, a guy who you trust walking around your house with that little spray thing. And then at the end, you can tell them that you think you might have rats under the house and if you could go chase them, you know. And so what they've, what they've found is that it's ex-military people that are the best uh, recruits for that. So you learn these Little things that, I don't know, I think makes you interesting at cocktail parties. Yeah. A couple comments is, one, I'd love to know, like, are there any stories that stand out in, in this time of doing it where your students uncovered something where you were like, oh, my God, this is the most amazing buy. I, like, it doesn't make any sense why this, co- this company is so cheap. This is the best looking stock since I've ever seen. Or on the flip side, have you ever had students cover something where it's like skeletons in the closet? Like, oh my God, we <laughs> we have to run away from this company. Anything that stands out in, in particular in, in sort of your mind? One is, you know, obviously we've had great winners and great losers like everybody else. I'm always suspect of people that don't admit that they've had some awful, <laughs> awful mistakes. But about 22 years ago, we picked up a company that's just across the lake here in New Orleans called Pool Corporation. And they were setting out, they'd just gone public, and they were setting out to be the largest distributor of swimming pool equipment in the world. And they were you know, starting from a very low base. And, uh, and they just, we started talking to them, and it just, everything started to make sense that you know, all these people that clean pools and all the people that manufacture pools, you know, they can't be buying. It's very cumbersome to buy a motor from one company or a ladders from the other company. And they became that person. And it's been really remarkable. I mean, we've never had a, a victory like this anywhere else, but that, that stock went from you know, 72 cents to $150. And you could just see it, you know, you could see there was a niche they were filling and how important that was. And of course, that was another example when you started to realize, well, wait a minute, we were so focused on how many new pools are going to be built, which is sort of a function of housing starts and all. But it was the idea that you were building that base of existing pools and they all needed to be maintained. That was the the real secret story in this piece. And the others is companies where we've... um I had one company, I won't mention, mention the name of it, but they were, uh, well, one, one time we met the CEO and he was driving a Hummer. And that indicated to me that maybe he was insecure. That's what I, I thought. Which, so. It depends on which Hummer, especially if it was the really old one, those like the tank. 
It was yeah, really, yeah, like that was really it. They had just ones. come out. I love those. And they were negotiating with the AFL-CIO, and I thought this was funny, but it probably wasn't a good thing. But their key to negotiating with the AFL-CIO was they were all going to grow beards to look tougher. Oh, my gosh. And I thought, yeah, these probably aren't going to work. <laughs> that company oh went bankrupt. But uh, <laughs> Interesting. Well, so, like, these students are pretty young, and for most of them have really never lived through multiple market cycles, which, which may be good or bad. I mean, the fact that they haven't had a long enough time to, to really be poisoned by the short-term world. Are there any sort of mistakes you see them repeating where it's either temporal, meaning like it's 2007 and, and they're just bullish on everything, or is it something where every year you tend to see the same sort of, whether it's behavioral or whether it's financial modeling, any, any mistakes that you see that are kind of consistent or, or specific to certain times? Absolutely. And that is that they tend to look at the past instead of going forward. Uh, they, you know, they'll look for companies that have had a good two or three years and be very optimistic about it. And they'll look at companies that have been troubled. And instead of looking at them as, you know, let's look a little deeper and maybe there's some opportunity, and obviously the stock is very cheap. So they tend to look at the past more than uh, uh, focusing on the future. That's, and of course, that's a mistake that a lot of investors make. And then uh, I think another thing is that they need, they tend to look at past earnings versus future earnings. Like you know, they'll they'll focus on trailing PE versus forward PE. So I think those are the things they just tend to, they can't really sometimes see the forest from the from the trees. In in uh, and that's you know it's exactly the same as most most investors, you know, when we talk about companies we, we like, it usually is, it sounds, it starts out as a very sad story. I always tell people when I'm at a cocktail party and I tell people what, what we're buying, um, you know, usually after a couple of minutes, the person's telling me they have to freshen their drink and they'll be right back and they, and they never come back, you know, and everybody wants to, when every, so a lot of times you just, and also patience, that's the other thing, you know, we have a class across the hall from ours, which is a trading class. And I don't know, I think their holding period is like 18 seconds. And I'm asking them to come up with target prices using a lot of different valuation models for where the stock's going to be 12 months from now. And, you know, that just seems ridiculous for this generation. You know, they've been so used to watching CNBC and trading the tape. And, and uh, that's just, I mean, I had one student, I said, told him we had to come up with a number for 12 months from now. And he said, oh, my God, that's like three girlfriends from now. <laughs> so, it's, uh, they, uh, they, uh, so uh, yeah, it's, uh, and that long-term perspective is, uh, you know, when I was taught the business back in Boston, you know, it, it by pretty conservative stock pickers and money managers. And so I, you know, I saw the idea of uh, maybe needing a couple of years for this story to turn out, and uh, this generation just doesn't doesn't seem to to want to want to do that. Or, um, but that's just a function of society. And and again, I think that's another opportunity for investors. If you're buying small unknown companies and you've got patience, and the and the management owns a lot of stock, that's going to be a big deal. And that management owning a lot of stock is so much more important than it was before. Because if you look at executive compensation, which I do admit is kind of out of control now, but if you look at it, it's almost all stock compensation. I mean, you, you really can't, you know, if you were a director and you offered the CEO $5 million a year or something for a normal company, it'd be like the shareholders would take you out and shoot you. But if you offer them uh, a reasonable salary and a bunch of stock options and preferred stock, invested stock, this is a, this is how those that's how people really make money. So you've got, um, you know, for good or for bad, you have people real people inside the company focusing 100% on getting that stock price up. We love that, the, the concept of skin in the game. Um, it not only applies to the CEOs, but also to investment fund managers. I mean, there's something like half to 80% of mutual fund managers have zero to 100 or less than 100,000 invested in their own fund. And, you know, and that's, that's, the same sort of situation where you want everyone's interests aligned. But the, you know, it's really interesting and probably the hardest as a money manager challenge that we face as investors is this subject or topic of patience. And Warren Buffett and Jamie Dimon recently came out with an article talking about companies shouldn't be focusing on short-term quarterly guidance. And as an investor, you know, there are market approaches. So as a quant, you can talk about cycles of value and, and even asset classes like U.S. stocks versus foreign, vice versa, yada, yada, that operate on the terms of many, many years, certainly not quarters, weeks, months. And 
maybe talk to me a little bit about the challenge um, or if you've solved the problem of, you know, conveying to your students who are in their 20s, if that, about trying to teach that concept of long-term and patience, because it's, it's a mistake that we see not just individual investors make. All the academic research shows that institutions are equally as bad about this on their pension fund hiring and firing decisions. They fire the funds that have had the worst three-year track record, hire the ones that have the best, and then they And you'd probably better doing it the other way around. Same thing with the S&P 500 committee. And so maybe talk a little bit about that because we, it's it's a probably the number one problem I think people really struggle with is this topic of of patience and long-term view. And you know, it's funny with the individuals, they might lack patience and such, but they have no, they don't have a gun to their head. I mean, if they can get the discipline, it's going to... Uh, to have patience, it's going to pay off. But the institutional folks, they really are in a jam. Uh, they've got to produce these numbers every quarter. They get reviewed. You know, they'll come and make a, their their update to the pension fund and such. I sat in all those pension funds for years. And uh, uh, there's a couple things that happen in there. You know, one is their, uh, the, the big thing is that they try to sell their losers before the end of every quarter so that the people on the board don't say, 20 years ago or say, uh, geez, you own Enron in here, you know? <laughs> so they try to get those, those names out. And a lot of times they're selling them at prices that they're just giving them away. And I, I think the other problem that you're, you're seeing is people start to drift towards whatever has been hot. And like, for instance, now alternative investments, private equity is the idea that, you know, you can't make this money in the stock market anymore. This is where you ought to go. And these fields, these asset classes all get, they all get very crowded. So now you've got zillions of people out chasing private equity deals and you don't have zillions of great private equity deals out there they get more and more and more expensive so i think there's there's that problem as well it's just human nature really plays against you in in all of this and and you know the other thing i i think you know we we talk about this at the universe probably more of a university discussion right now but it's going to be a, a big discussion is these corporations right now by law they are beholden to only the shareholders. I mean, that's the whole thing is get the earnings per share up and that'll get the stock price up. And But a lot of people now are starting to look back and saying, well, wait a minute, is it bigger than that? Are they beholden to stakeholders? Do they owe anything to the employees? Do they owe anything to the community and, and their customers and, and such like that when they're making decisions? So I think that's going to be the big philosophical discussion over the next 10 years. Uh, if you attend the right cocktail parties, that'll be uh, that'll be discussed. <laughs> How is this kind of, you've been doing this for 30 years and the interaction with students and these courses and following these companies, is there any ways that this has sort of changed your personal kind of framework and and approach to markets and and investing that you've kind of either learned from the students, either insights or mistakes or the, the old art of concept of, of teaching something requires you to become, you know, more of a master at it. You know, any, anything that's kind of changed in your approach over the past past few decades? Yeah, I, r- I really have. And, and it's been that be really looking for companies that are out of favor, you know, and trying to not chase the hot ones. I think one of the big problems I think people are going to have going forward is the I guess is maybe the default button is that everybody is putting their money in these S&P 500 index funds. Well, I think the index fund concept is good, but everybody is in this same 500 companies. And these 500 companies are basically the most expensive companies in the market because all that money has been pouring into them and there's no, there's no research or anything. It's just the largest 500 companies by market capitalization. So that scares me. And I think mainly a lot of people ought to start to look at if they're going to index, maybe index a mid-cap index or the small cap like the Russell 2000 or such. So you know, when I first got in this business, I was, it was 1979 and, and an older guy pulled me aside who I now think was like 26 years old. But he, um, but he told me, he said, uh, Peter, remember if the majority of the people were right, a majority of the people would be rich and they're not. And I've always remembered that. In fact, I have that tattooed on my left buttocks. It's a very, <laughs> very important thing to, to remember. And, uh, so I, I, so I know it's radio, so you won't be able to see that, but there's, um, that's all right. And, you can take a photo. You can take a photo and we'll post it to the show notes. <laughs> the other thing I've learned a lot is I know how companies I am totally fascinated with how companies make money and how people are managed. We have a you know, New Orleans after Katrina became the number one city in the country for young entrepreneurs. So 
about eight years ago, I started a radio show on the local NPR affiliate called Out to Lunch. And every week we bring in two business people, usually entrepreneurs, uh, to Commander's Palace, which is one of the greatest restaurants in the world. So everybody says yes, just, just for the free lunch. I don't know if they want to be in the show or not. But, and they talk about the trials and tribulations of running a business and the mistakes they've made and the, and the positives. And it, it's been very, very eye-opening. It's made me very optimistic because it, just to see so many young people uh, starting businesses these days. And I, I think that's the other point I wanted to bring up is, you know, I'm uh, 61 years old and people my age, the baby boomers, tend to look down at today's young people. It's like, you know, they're living in their parents' basement and saving up for a new tattoo, you know, and, and that's not what I see at all. I see that this generation, first of all, with computers, and all, they're, they're much smarter than we were. And the other thing about them is that they're much more community-minded. I think they're a better generation than my, uh, than my generation. You know, after Katrina here at Tulane, we started mandatory community service. So every student has to, whether it's tutoring little kids or, you know, fixing up a house in uh, maybe a low-income neighborhood, they have to do X amount of hours every year. And to give an example about today's young people, we have averaged 35,000 applicants every year for the last seven years. And it's because, and I think we're doing a lot of the things well too, but it's because these kids, that's what they want to do. They want to give back. And uh, I think we're in great shape. I know, you know, some people, it's like, oh, I don't want to hand this over to the next group or whatever. I think they're going to do a much better job than we did. I'm, I'm really, really very optimistic. That's what I, I often tell people when I'm particularly depressed about something. I say, go read either it's Entrepreneur Magazine or Inc. Magazine. Sometimes they have these like <laughs> lists of like, whether it's 40 under 40 or here's the top startups and entrepreneurs around the country. And you read about these people and these stories. And it's so just kind of empowering and exciting and just changes your worldview because these it's, it doesn't have to be young people necessarily, but just people in general that entrepreneur, some of the problems are tackling. It's pretty awesome. So, so we haven't really mentioned it much, but the cool thing about this uh, Birken Road program is it's also, you mentioned that there's a, an actual fund that utilizes some of the research out of the program that's been around for going on. Yeah, 50- the fund's a, yeah, fund almost 17 years. Yeah. Wow. And the performance has been great. And <laughs> It's hundreds of millions of dollars in the fund. Maybe talk yeah, just briefly. Publicly. Yeah, yeah, it trades under HHBUX, and a lot of people a lot of people confuse it because uh, what we do, what we do, that sell side research, we're the only ones in the country that that do it. The the thing we get confused with is something we have, and about two hundred other schools have, is where they took some money from the endowment fund and they manage it in a fund, usually large cap uh, stocks in class. But this is, uh, this is an actual fund that trades out in the uh, market. It's run by Hancock Bank. Uh, actually, it's now Hancock Whitney Bank. And their money managers uh, utilize the research that we do as well as other sources. And the fund is really, although it's not all our companies, it's all companies like ourselves, you know. And it's been really terrific. You know, my original idea was to have the students manage uh, an outside fund. And after I spoke to the university's attorneys and got them to put the gun back in the drawer. They, uh, we worked on another plan because <laughs> there'd be huge you know, financial uh, liabilities for something like that. But um, they use our research. And of course, the research is uh, available to anyone. You know, it's right there at, right there at the website. And, uh, but uh, that's been very fulfilling. Because you know, when we first started, I kept thinking, you know, these are great little companies and they're, and they're fun to look at. And, you know, I think some of them are going to make great investments. But on their own, they seem, you know, quite risky because of their, their size. But if you could buy them as a group, I thought, you know, things would really work out. And that's, and that's, kind, of what's, um, that's kind of what's happened. And the other thing is, you, know, you probably talk about this on your shows, but one of the saddest things is people come to you with their investments and they, they might have 10 mutual funds and they think they're very diversified. And you look and the same they, – they, they have the largest same 20 companies in all the funds. So you're really not getting any diversification. So with this fund and all the smaller cap funds, I always tell them, uh, you know, I don't know if it's going up or down, but, you know, you're at least getting some diversification. You don't own these things for, for good or for bad. You don't already own these in another fund. So, uh, and the buyouts have been funny, you know, uh, in the last year or two, we, a couple of the, the companies, we had uh, Popeye's fried chicken, which is a New Orleans company, um, they uh, kind of an addictive fried chicken, and it's uh, they got bought up by Burger King, and then Cash America is a, a pawn shop headquartered out of Dallas, and they were bought out by uh, one of their competitors. So you know you see these companies, and they don't. Uh, I think one of the things that hits people is nobody thinks they're publicly traded companies. They just don't seem like they would be, and you know maybe they shouldn't be, but but they are, and 
it, it creates uh, it, it creates uh, an area you just you just swim. I, I was on NBR once, a nightly business report out of Miami, and the guy was asking me a couple of questions that I was kind of ready for. But then at the end, he asked me. He said, "Peter, you're um, I think you've got very smart students. I don't doubt that, but you're fishing in the right hole." And I thought, you know, I never put it that way, but that is the truth. <laughs> I think it's I think it's great advice. You know, the the example. We often use the phrase my buddy Josh Brown uses for the mutual fund situation you're talking about is they'll get a client that'll bring in a portfolio and he calls it mutual fund salad, meaning it's just <laughs> this just mess of you know overlapping funds. Yep. But in many cases, financial advisors, which we love in general, but particularly the older ones, they've just accumulated a lot of funds. And there was a Wall Street Journal article that we referenced recently that said the average financial advisor that's been in business for 20 years owns 200 mutual funds across his clients. And like how you even, you know, and, and the, the reason why is because he bots, buys them, forgets about them. And some of that is tax related, but but maybe that number, it's, and it should be an order of magnitude. on his part, but yeah, yeah, but that's, I mean, how could you ever keep up with that many funds? It's crazy bones, I know. But, you know, that's, that's uh, people, it again goes back to the behavioral kind of some of these concepts of people not feeling diversified with only one or two funds, particularly even oddly if they're a fund of funds. And we struggle with a lot of that as a public fund manager trying to keep people behaving uh, and it's it's hard. Um, you know, so you guys were kind of pioneers in this. It has many other schools, I know many schools now probably have security analysis classes. I certainly took one as an undergrad at Virginia. Has anyone else kind of copied the model of the publishing security analysis reports, or are you guys still kind of in the in the wilderness? I think we're we're in the wilderness. Uh, it's a lot of work. The program. Uh, we were trying to figure this out recently, but when you take into account the salaries and the travel, you know, flying these kids around is a lot of money. It's about eight hundred thousand dollars a year to run it. So, uh, you know, most people can't afford it. Uh, I think, and I'm not complimenting myself here at all, but it would have to be run by somebody who'd been in the business. It's not a very purely academic uh, academic area, and you need somebody who would really you know, buy into it, that it would be theirs. And, uh, I think that's what it, what's required. So we're the only ones, uh, only ones doing it. And uh, I tell you, one of the reasons we've done so well in the placement side is these kids are great. You know, they graduate, they, they love Tulane, they love the Freeman School of Business and they loved Birkin Road reports. And they, and when they get to a good job, they have a, a wonderful knack for throwing the rope back over and trying to hire a couple more existing students. And, you know, that's been a, a great perpetuating mechanism that's, uh, that's worked out very well. And one of the things we tell the students is that, you know, some, you don't have to go to New York. I mean, there's great positions all over the world and certainly uh, all over the country. We have, you know, uh, people that work over there in, in Los Angeles. We've got people all through Texas in the middle of the middle of the country. You know, it tends to, New York tends to be the, you know, they kind of promote themselves as the as the be all and end all, but uh, you know we've got people everywhere, and you know different cities going to make different kids happy. I think you call your alumni Birkendorks. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. And then we tried another one where they would just be roadies, like Birken roadies. So we're we're working on that part. In fact, we just got a new approval on something. Is at graduation, if you were in the Birken Roads program, uh, you get a set of Mardi Gras beads with our logo around it, and it's to wear on your robe. So. So it's really, it's, so that, <laughs> we're really kicking in some things here. So we're, we're winding down. We've kept you for an hour already. We've got a couple more questions we want to ping you with. Peter, you, you seem to have a pretty curious mind. Is, is anything on the forefront as you're kind of thinking about markets, about investing, about research, and this program in general that either we haven't talked about or something that you're kind of summertime marinating on? Uh, anything, uh, <laughs> anything in general? Well, I've got a good place to marinate because we just opened a new business school building about a uh, about eight weeks ago, but I, I tell you what is, and that is that I think at some point the issue of wealth and income inequality is going to really come back to bite us. Is uh, we've never had so much of the wealth captured in so such a small group of people, and uh, you know we've really become two separate countries. You know, people that are doing very, very, very well, and uh, and then people that just can't seem to really make any headway. And I, I think that's, you know, if we don't do something about it, and I have no idea what to do, by the way, it's, um, if that doesn't rectify itself, if you look back in history, you know, it's usually been 
either war or revolution or uh, much, much higher taxes on the wealthy. And uh, I saw John Tudor Jones the other day say that none of those were on his bucket list. You know, So I think um, that, that divide, I think, is something we really got to keep an eye on because uh, you know, capitalism only works when everybody thinks they can move up in the chain. If they you know, give up on that thought, um, it, it sort of collapses. And yes, they gave a poll was during the presidential election that 70% of America d- believes that the, the, it's not a, a fair playing field. So I think in, in all this wealth creation and all these rising stock markets and all, I think we've got to, uh, start, to start to at least consider some options there to make, make this a, a fairer country. Uh, and I, I think that's, um, you know, hopefully there's some good minds doing that. I don't have the answer at all, but, but it's what I hear when I go through the, uh, the heartland. And uh, I do about 40 speeches a year around the country. And, and, you know, I talk to people that aren't in the market and it's just, they're more fascinating to talk to it than anyone else. I, you know, I was up in, uh, not too far from your wheat farm there giving a talk and, uh, and this person came up to me and I told him his lecture was about the stock market. And she just said, it's a casino, you know, and uh, first of all, it's casino, but it's uh, but you know, that's the way they view it. And, um, you know, versus a part of the growth of uh, American uh, commerce. And, you know, America's been, you know, anybody that's bet, bet against the United States in 1776 has lost, and they're probably going to lose again, you know. So we could have, and that's the thing about capitalism. Capitalism is every seven to ten years you get a washout. You don't know the extreme of that washout, but it clears the system and grows again to a higher plateau. And, uh, and you know, people have just got to recognize that's part of the, the plan. I mean, c- capitalism and democracy of the only you know the only systems that have ever worked but that's part of the uh that's part of the equation yeah it's challenging you know we talk a lot on this podcast about particularly when it comes to personal finance and investing as as close cousins you know there's a pretty big behavior gap and and the frustration on my side with neither of those courses are taught in high school and certainly not required to my i mean it's like five percent of high schools teach them and that's probably the most criminal yeah that's yeah, on my that's really, on my to do list for the next few years to try to get okay. uh, to work on that. Okay, go ahead and teach some kids. Yeah, no, I don't want to yep. teach them. I want to institutionalize it somehow that there's a, a system for teaching them. That's why we have great professors like you. I would. I'm ah, a quant. That, I'm a quant. Well, I'd be the world's I'll most boring. I have a, my best friend lives in Santa Monica, so I'll come out there and help you. Perfect. Uh, I think, that, and if if any of the business students are listening, I think it's actually one of the bigger. Business idea opportunities that we talk about is is creating some, you know, sort of these online education for not just personal finance, but also investing modules where there's not really any good resources if if you wanted to go and learn about uh, a lot of these concepts. So maybe maybe that's a thesis project for some of your Tulane students to, to build some of that out because it's a challenge. I don't know. I don't I, have any I, good I think answers. It is. But you know that, that experience when you tell somebody who's maybe in middle school or the beginning of high school how these things work and, you know, their eyes get big and they get, see the light bulb go off. I mean, that, um, that's a pretty great feeling. Agreed. And it's tough, though, too. You know, you, you talk about like the age of a lot of 17 year olds preparing for college and the task of saying, hey, you know, this is a pretty big life decision. It's going to affect you for the next 30 years about taking on hundred thousand dollars of student debt and all these challenges and without equipping them with the basics. Anyway, I'm on my soapbox. Sorry. <laughs> so um, anyway, if you got any good solutions, anyone else listening, let me know. All right, Professor, last question we ask everyone, and you may have mentioned it already. So if you have, you're gonna have to pick number two. What has been your most memorable personal investment in your lifetime? It could be good. It could be bad. It could be Anything you can think of, but first thing that comes to mind, what's been the most memorable? My most memorable investment experience is uh, almost 10 years ago, I brought 27 students to Omaha, Nebraska to spend the day with Warren Buffett. And uh, that was the most amazing experience. So we were there uh, eight days after Lehman Brothers had closed. It, uh, it had been scheduled for months and months and months. I thought he was going to cancel. He didn't cancel. That day, he penned that article in the New York Times that this was the opportunity of a generation to buy stocks. And, you know, I meet a lot of famous people by doing public speaking, but uh, some are great and some aren't just the way you th- think. But Buffett was amazing. He was uh, very warm, very kind, very funny, very generous with his time. He took us out to lunch and made us all drink cherry Cokes and uh, his, his position in Coca-Cola. And, um, and uh, so I think that was my most memorable investment uh, experience. Does that work? 
Yeah, it works great. You know, it's um, I had a I I checked that off my list. The Omaha experience. It's such a fun little town. Highly recommend all listeners to hustle it up because you probably only have a few <laughs> as far as the the life expectancy you're not tables. an actuary but yeah and also it's less well known but charlie munger holds court here uh for the daily journal meeting in los angeles which is a much more accessible and no, easy no one to I go to is, yeah so look it up he uh and you can find transcripts and they may even i think yahoo may even live stream it but you know he's well into his i think he's into his 90s now and you know, physically kind of slowed down a lot, but mentally, I mean, still one of the the brightest people and um, witty and uh, and funny as well. So that's a and you know what fun- I love about him is is you know when you get to a certain age, you kind of lose that filter mm-hmm. and you just say whatever you want to say, and mm-hmm. that's what I love about reading his transcripts. He just does <laughs> I hope not to get that stage myself. He does not care. That is for sure. I love it. <laughs> he will say whatever. And then the best is like when they ask him a question. A question he's probably heard 10,000 times or just doesn't care to answer. He's just like, I got nothing to add on that. And that's my, that's, I channel that anytime I go on TV and, and I say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the world's, world's worst guest, but uh, I'm going to channel Charlie Munger and say, I got nothing on no, that. No, you, you can't be the world's worst guest and the world's worst wheat farmer. You know, I'd say, hey, this is this is behaviorally. I'm self-aware of all of my. This is why I'm a quant. I was I was the world's worst security analysis, so I'm a quant. That's that's I know my limits. Well, I think you're a very good guy on the radio, so good. We, you got that going. All right, professor. It's been a lot of fun. Where can people find more information if they want to follow Birken Road? They want to follow your musings. What's the best uh, oh, resources? Really, really, two spots is uh, BirkenRoad.org is going to be able to see all the reports and all the. Uh, all the little musings we've had. And the other is the radio show is available. As, um, you can get it as a podcast if you go to itsneworleans.com. And, uh, you know, it's a very upbeat kind of funny show asking these uh, these people the questions about businesses. And I think you get a big kick out of it. And, and, and we really do eat, so you will hear forks and knives hitting the plate. And by the way, I think you neglected to mention this, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the conference you guys hold every year, I believe it's free. And more importantly, is it still on the first day of Jazz Fest? Exactly. Yeah. And that'll be uh, uh, and that'll be all. You can register right at that uh, right at that website. It's going to be April 26th next year. And that is true. You know, Jazz Fest is, uh, you know, Mardi Gras is what happens if you uh, book it as the world's greatest free party. You get exactly that. You, know, you get a wide variety of people. But Jazz Fest is just the most phenomenal. Uh, if you if you love music, a lot of people think it's all about jazz. It's actually all kinds of different uh, different music. And uh, we are there the first uh, we our conference is the first half of that Friday, and it goes Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And um, that that would make a pretty pretty terrific weekend count me in i've never been and it's been on my to-do list as well so uh next next spring jeff uh you're coming Great. along professor it's been a blast thanks so much Thank for taking so the time much. out a lot of fun bye-bye listeners you can find the show notes the archives at mebfavor.com forward slash podcast wide links to birkin road all these reports all the other good stuff we talked about today if you love the show if you hate it please leave a review we read every one of them and appreciate your input Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing.